Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. We've been talking a lot about my favorite uh, topics. They include genomics and uh, genetic manipulation. We are in the era of the uh, order up, you know, order up a rat, order of a rabbit, order up a rat, uh, with the specific knockout mutation. We're in the order of, we're in the era of actually having seven, count them, seven FDA approved treatments now, gene therapies for various diseases approved in humans, much of this through modified virus vectors. We've talked about phages, and we've talked about how they get into the uh, bacteria, well, in the same way that COVID gets into us, a sort of structural syringe. But that can be filled with anything with our current technology. And some researchers in at Harvard University uh, came up with a unique alternative to the current methods being used to control stray cats. So there are about 480 million cats, uh, domesticated cats, that is, in the world. And about, um, there are actually about 600 million, and 480 of them are free-roaming, free-range cats. Many of those are strays. And... Of course, the animal suffers as well, but cats are responsible for the extinction of over 60 species of other animals, ranging from mice to uh, vet- various birds. And in fact, our neighborhood songbird population, particularly around this time of year when all the quail babies are scurrying about, uh, you can just kind of watch the population dwindle as and uh, see the little the little piles of feathers, uh, as the cats get their games. Well, in Tel Aviv, apparently, it's a big problem. They start here with statistics from Tel Aviv, which is where they uh, tried this new therapy. But they spend $100,000 a year on neutering programs, just trying to uh, deal with their uh, stray cat population. And this new technology, well, it's a vaccine that care that is a viral vector it carries a modified virus that changes the genes of the cats who receive the vaccines and it does this in a very clever way it raises a lesser known reproductive hormone called anti-mullerian hormone amu and we actually now can use amu to say when a woman is really in menopause, when her ovaries have really shut down, because normally you can find this in the bloodstream. And where it's coming from is it's coming from the follicles that house immature egg cells in mammals. And as the follicles, uh, they're supposed to grow and one or two follicles release at a time in general. You don't want You don't want to be the octomom and have you know, eight follicles releasing and having them all get fertilized. Uh, These follicles burst and 
the more mature the follicle, the more of this anti-Mullerian hormone they produce. And the idea is to slow down all the other follicles so that they don't produce, uh, so that they don't win the race to be the first follicle to rupture. So the hormone acts, if you will, as a brake or a red traffic light to make sure that you only get so many eggs being released. I think more like those metering lights that they have to let you on the freeway, except instead of the freeway, it's the fallopian tube. So the dominant egg essentially suppresses all the others, and then once it leaves, then the next dominant egg starts suppressing all the others. And then when it grows to the point where it leaves in the month, then that's your menstrual cycle for you. So Dr. Pepin at at Harvard University thought, I bet if I can persuade a mammal to make more than usual amounts of anti-Mullerian hormone, I'm going to uh, stop all of the eggs from from growing and essentially put the ovary in a, a form of hibernation. And he did that by injecting cats with a virus that attacks, that, that targets, I should say, uh, egg follicle cells and induce and giving it extra copies of the feline AMH gene. He essentially created a copy number variation. This is a type of genetic variation that we find very, very difficult to measure. And we can measure a difference in the code, but if you have lots of copies of the same code, we're, we're going to tend to see that as not a mutation. Copy number variation is very difficult to detect using our current techniques because they involve chopping up the, D, the DNA and then amplifying it and then counting how many of each sequence you've got. So you can see how uh, exact copies really wouldn't help you. They would they would sort of fall through the cracks, so to speak. Anyway, so they did their first uh, experiment. This was reported in uh, Nature Communications, just in uh, probably in May, since this is from a June article, uh, fairly last week. Uh, so in uh, so they injected the cats with this virus that contained a synthetic copy of the feline uh, anti-Mullerian hormone gene. And three control cats, and I love I love this part. Uh, they uh, they decided to stick the virus in the muscle cells because the muscle cells are replaced, and so you were effectively sterilizing those cats. And then they wanted to measure levels of hormones that appeared in the cats' bodies, so they did that with the expedient method of um, their poop. But if you've got you know nine cats and only six cat boxes you have to keep the poop apart. So my favorite part about this story is that each cat had its own feeding dish and it got its own food probably in a separate little compartment when they were feeding. And they dyed the foods, but they ran out of colored dye. So for a few of them, they used glitter. And I don't know if the fertile females were the ones who had the glitter poo, but they should have been, just should have been. After about eight months, they did this. And uh, then they introduced male cats into the living quarters to see if they would breed. And what uh, and the control cats who'd not been getting the uh, the virus all got pregnant. The six cats who'd 
received the anti-Mullerian hormone virus did not get pregnant. And when they measured the levels in their poo of the anti-Mullerian hormone, they were making a thousand times more than normal. And a couple of them even lost their taste for sex. The, of the cats didn't even go into asterisk. They just lost their, text, their, their taste for sex entirely. And they weren't able to reproduce. So some of, them, some of them did mate, some of them didn't, but they were all fertile, infertile. Now, this is excellent. What if you could put it in a pill? Uh, it would be an interesting birth control pill because it puts your ovaries in hibernation. And uh, because the receptors for estrogen and progesterone are all over the body, a lot of the side effects that we get with our existing hormonal birth control pill cause problems for people. We might not have these problems with an AMH uh, pill, and if it can uh, be doctored so that it can be given orally, this could be a really interesting, uh, a, a really interesting thing. You also get rid of a lot of the side effects for birth control, and clearly, if a person did desire uh, to become infertile, they could just have essentially this vaccination, and it would they wouldn't need a tubal ligation. Uh, presumably, as long and you, they could get a blood test periodically, maybe in, with their physical to make sure they were still producing uh, very high levels of AMH, but. It's, as I look at this, you know, I'm always like, okay, what could go wrong with the technology? And when you start messing around with hormones, my first thought is, well, where else could you mess something up with this? But the fact is, there isn't much else that has receptors to AMH except follicle cells. In fact, I'm not aware of anything, but obviously before we develop it as a birth control injection, we'll want to be very, very sure that there's not some target lurking under the rocks that would lead to adverse consequences. Nevertheless, an interesting, uh, an interesting bit of uh, new tech. I see we've got a question for today uh, from someone who wrote to on air at KSQD. So let's see what Elizabeth has to say. Hi, Dr. Don. I tried to submit this question on your website. Uh, I don't know if it was received, but can you please answer this on air today? Uh, just curious if you know of any natural treatments for male hair la- loss. I write treatment in parentheses because it's not a disease. My 30-year-old son has some hair loss on the front of his hairline. He's healthy but has had skin issues on his hands, an occasional rash when he washes them too often. This has gone on for years, so I suggested uh, to him for years he take skin hair vitamins to strengthen his skin, which he hasn't done until recently. Can you suggest any natural methods to help his hair loss? Perhaps vitamin scalp massage or just make sure that he combs his hair. He seems to avoid it, fearing that more hair will fall out. He doesn't want to use Rogaine or other treatments that could be dangerous or have side effects. Well, Liz, uh, I'm not sure what's going on with your son, and I want you to be very sure that he's not actually pulling the hair out as a nervous tick. Uh, this is called trichotillomania, and it does respond to, uh, well, for one thing, it responds to Prozac. I learned from my friend, the cat lover, that her cat is on Prozac because it, 
he pulls his hair out by excessively licking. Uh, but assuming that you don't think this is due to something physically that he's doing, uh, there are there's some data that red laser light can be helpful. And you'll find these light hats around the place. Key in the case of your son is your side of the family in terms of early hair loss. Because the most common kind of hair loss, male pattern baldness, is related highly to familial history. So this would be your father, grandfather, your brothers, and whether they started losing their hair and having a receding hairline in their 30s. I do consider Rogaine to be a pretty good therapy. He may eventually move towards hair transplants. It's terrible that it's happening to him at such a young age where he his full sense of self-esteem isn't uh, formed. And I don't think that much of the other natural stuff is you know, worth the paper that the ad is printed on. Honestly, I haven't seen uh, anything. I have, I've seen people doing, you know, PRP injections for alopecia areata, which is a type of autoimmune hair loss, but that doesn't happen at the hairline. That happens in circles and spots, uh, usually quite circular on the scalp and is distinctly different in the way it presents. Sorry, I don't have uh, a more coherent response, but I do think checking with uh, checking out the family tree on your side may tell you whether or not it's worth pursuing this further or finding a, a way to be okay with it. And as I said, hair transplants are pretty sophisticated now, and and what they do is they tr- they pull hair from the back and transplant it onto the front. And the initial uh, versions of that were not successful. They looked a little bit like you'd suddenly become a Ken doll. But the the recent ones they're they're quite good. And they've got it down to being fairly re- to being realistic enough that really nobody's going to notice, and it might be the best thing for his self esteem if it really is affecting him adversely. A perfect storm has arisen in the Sargasso Sea. You remember the Sargasso Sea? We all learned about it back in grade school. This big swamp of seaweed somewhere between the European continent and the. Uh, Atlantic coast, uh, where ships were marooned and died, and it was the sort of elef- uh, the galleon's graveyard. And uh, it's still a thing, that Sargasso Sea. It's still sitting out there. But uh, turns out it's developing its own little microbiome uh, with plastic debris that is then being called, of course, because it's going to collect, right? No surprise there. But particular forms of Vibrio bacteria, which can actually eat plastic debris. And so we're starting to get a, a kind of new, uh, perfect pathogen storm. It has implications for marine life and for public health. We, we do see Vibrio bacteria uh, around the world. And in fact, this is the bad infection you can get if you have a wound underwater. Uh, there's a wonderful one called Vibrio vulnificus, which 
sounds dreadful and is. It's one of the flesh-eating bacteria, and it can cause life-threatening foodborne illnesses as well from uh, seafood consumption if it gets in your gut from contaminated seafood. Sargassum are uh, big brown algae, and they have uh, part. They exist in large forests in the ocean, and sometimes. After a storm, you'll get large amounts of the seaweed accumulating on beaches. And it, uh, the plastic debris has really been known about for about a decade, but no, had been, no one had been in there uh, studying the bacteria as, uh, from it until researchers from North Atlanta uh, sequenced the uh, genomes of 15 Vibrio species that they found in eel larvae, plastic marine debris, and uh, sargassum and seawater samples collected from that area. And they st- discovered that all of these Vibrio pathogens have a unique mutation that allows them to stick to microplastics. And plastic's basically a new element in the environment, they say, and animals are breeding to make use of it. These Vibrio are extremely aggressive and can seek out and stick to plastic within minutes, uh, and there are, they use attachment factors that are similar that they use to attach to human flesh. And these are hitherto-for uh, undescribed uh, group of bacteria. But uh, these are very closely related to cholera. And they uh, have certain properties, rapid biofilm formation, uh, hemolytic properties, which means they break down blood cells. And uh, they definitely have potential to become pathogens. Uh, they have a toxin called zot, zonula occludens toxin. Uh, and they uh, actually, when I'm looking for leaky gut, I'll test sometimes for the presence of a compound called zonulin, which is the zonula, uh, the, the structure, the zonula is a, uh, like a Velcro pad between cells in the gut that keeps them zipped together. Anyway, these these cholerae found in the Sargasso Sea and also in brown seaweed and in a in a seaweed wash up on shore near you. Uh, these contain uh, a bacteria that could be very toxic to the human gut, and they are starting to see that in certain animals that are being found, uh, including fish. So the fish. When they get leaky gut, they release a lot of waste nutrients, and that feeds the sargasso and creates more organisms. So it's adaptive for these bacteria, and they'll eat they'll eat dead fish, no problems. So uh, some data show that any beached brown algae uh, that of of the sargassum type contains high amounts of vibrio bacteria. So you know, nature continues to evolve. Whatever we hand it, it either learns to break it down or eat it or both. And the lesson is, uh, wash your hands after you handle seaweed. It's not a bad idea anyway. Don't wash your food off in the in the water, even in our lovely and pristine ocean water here. There's still a, a fair amount of bacteria uh, coming down from the rain and from the rivers. You can get sick. So you, you definitely want to not consider the ocean water to be stuff you would want to drink or stuff that you would want to wash your food in. And washing the kids off, uh, or at least their arms, before you feed them at the beach 
is, is a good practice this summer. Might save you a trip to the ER. This is about low-dose naltrexone and brain pain. I've been using uh, low-dose naltrexone now for about a decade. Uh, I should tell you, first of all, that naltrexone is, an, is the first cousin of naloxone or Narcan. It's a opiate uh, ag- uh, antagonist. It blocks opiate receptors. And uh, unlike naloxone, which cannot be given orally, naltrexone is stable in the gut and does get into the bloodstream. And, of course, it's a too slow process for us to use that to block an overdose. But it can be used uh, to, to help people who are addicted to opiates because if they take it, they won't get the high from using opiates and they also won't get any pain relief. Uh, so we're very careful to make sure that people aren't taking this. It's given an hour before drinking alcohol because it reduces cravings and it can be helpful to moderate alcohol intake in those who, let's say, are recovered from alcoholism, but for maybe for political reasons or just personal reasons, feel the need to drink socially. So they take this pill an hour before they drink and they don't go off and keep drinking after that first glass because the the dopamine and the reward uh, cycle isn't triggered because the drug suppresses the connections with the opiate because the opiate structures are involved with that. But if you drip, drop the dose down to like three milligrams and you take it at night, naloxone does something really different. It turns off microglial inflammation, which is a form of brain inflammation. We use uh, we use LDN on a daily basis, maybe two or three times a day in multiple sclerosis because it's an anti-inflammatory for nerves. And that's what multiple sclerosis is. It's uh, immune system-driven inflammation of the nerves. Low-dose naltrexone also decreases something called central synthesization. This is the brain pain that occurs in chronic pain. Uh, this is the sort of thing you see in fibromyalgia in particular, where the brain sort of gets amped up and senses touch and a light scratch as if it were painful. Practically speaking, the stimulation isn't painful or shouldn't be, but it's received as pain in the brain. And using LDN can definitely work with that. Now, there's a whole bunch of things that fit into this category, uh, phantom lane pain, neuropathic pain, uh, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, also known as complex regional pain syndrome, autoimmune pain, uh, sometimes some cancer pains, uh, traumatic brain injury, which can persist for years after the injury, uh, AIDS, Parkinson's disease, ALS, other neurogenitive things. So not anything that is neuroinflammatory and chronic probably deserves a trial of this. You can't get LDN at a standard uh, pharmacy. You can only get regular dose naloxone, which is the 50 milligram dose. But every compounding pharmacy in the country can do a very good job of making it. And almost every compounding pharmacy 
is the two that we have in my neighborhood, Loudoun Pharmacy, and one compounding pharmacy up in Scotts Valley. Both do excellent jobs. There is there's a pharmacy in uh, Salinas. There's a pharmacy in Boulder Creek. There's one in Los Gatos. You can find, uh, sorry, not Boulder Creek, Creek um, Monterey. Uh, you can find a compounding pharmacy not too far from you. And there's plenty of mail order ones as well. So you can't use this if people are taking narcotics because they're already blasting through it. It's a subtle dose that does something. Like many things in functional medicine, a little bit has a very different effect than a lot. The high And with this one, when you get above 4.5 milligrams, it generally works less well. Uh, there was a study of veterans with chronic pain that found that 3 milligrams worked better than 4.5 milligrams. Uh, but if we're going to block uh, narcotics and we're using 50 milligrams a day, that wouldn't touch chronic pain. It would just take away the, the pain reduction from the narcotic. So in some people, you can get insomnia when you first start it. So I was taught to go with a very low dose, like 1.5 milligrams, and then go then go to 3 milligrams, and then go to 4.5. Maybe I'll change that to 1 milligram, then 2, then 3, since I'm seeing in this the recommendation that maybe 3 is better than 4.5. And uh, stop at 3 for people under 150 pounds, go up to the 4.5 if you're over 150. Uh, and sometimes morning is better than evening, depends on the individual, you play around with it. But it's going to take months if you do decide to try this for your chronic pain. It's going to take months for it to start working. Uh, you've got to really commit to three months and then judge whether or not you're getting any benefit. I don't know why it takes so long, but, you know, if you've been through the gabapentine and you've been through the pregabulin and you've uh, been through the uh, Requip and you've been through the tricyclic antidepressants and you're still in pain, if you are dealing with long COVID pain, that's post-viral fibromyalgia, as far as any of us are concerned. It's brain inflammation causing phantom pain. You have nothing to lose by trying this. So my recommendation is, yeah, give it a shot. And uh, if you can't afford the comp, if you do the compounded for a couple of months and you find that it works, but it's expensive or more expensive, get a prescription for the 50s and grind them up and then mix them with a measured amount of water. And uh, if you grind up a 50-milligram tablet, I'll give you the recipe. You grind up a 50-milligram tablet and then mix it with 83 cc's of water. That's about three ounces. And shake it, get all the little particles dissolved. Then a teaspoon of that solution will give you three milligrams of the uh, naloxone. So three milligrams, dose, five cc's, three ounces of water. And if you want to get that that 4.5 milligram dose, you do the same thing. You ground up the tablet, 
but you give two ounces of water, that's about 55 cc's, and take one teaspoon of that. So either way, you will get that dose that you're shooting for, the 3.5, sorry, the 3 or the 4.5. This is an extremely safe drug. It's approved at 50 milligrams a day indefinitely. Uh, There have been nine different systematic trials of low-dose LDN with no adverse events at all. And if even 10% of the people who hear me try this and get some benefit, then it will have been worth the time it's taken to tell it to you. One from Fred. Uh, Fred writes, uh, I heard some dentists recommend a teaspoon of bleach in their water pick applications a couple times a week to kill bad uh, bacteria. Hydrogen peroxide said to kill good ones. Well, Brett, I think uh, based on our dental hygiene discussions and uh, some uh, back channel stuff that I've uh, heard, you shouldn't put anything in your water pick except water. Uh, maybe you could get away with a tea with a drop of tea tree oil, but it is going to be kind of an indiscriminate kill, and so I don't recommend that you. Um, that you do that. We've got a call coming in. I will go ahead and pick it up. Give us your name and tell you why you're calling. Hello. Oh, hi. This is um, this is Carrie. Hi, Carrie. And hi. And I'm calling with just a general subject area, um, Dr. Don. And I don't know if you can do a little bit now or in future weeks, but I have a new friend who's really, really, really overweight. And she wants to lose weight, but will, you know, it isn't really able to put herself on a program. And, you know, I'm trying to be someone who knows how to, how to, you know, just, and I, I love her. She's really a beautiful person. So, um, I just don't know how to help her. And I just wondered kind of some of the, the, um, real good reasons for losing weight and um, she is diabetic but um, she you know does the shot thing so I don't know if you've talked about obesity before but that's a subject I would love to hear you talk more about okay well thank you and I'm sorry tell me your name again Kath? Carrie 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 um, when it comes to uh, diabetics who are obese there's, you, the, there are so many reasons, and I have so many patients uh, who suffer from that, and they sincerely want to lose weight. They, mm-hmm. they don't, it doesn't really help to tell them the, all the things that will go wrong with them. They sort of have, they've heard that one before. But even if you tell someone, if you, do, if you don't do this impossible thing that's impossible for you, I'll shoot you. They'll, they won't, they still won't do it because it's not that they don't want to be shot. Uh, it's just that they really truly are in a physiological quandary. Now, part of what's happened to your friend who is very obese is that her neurology has actually gotten distorted. And, you know, that, that insulin resistance that we were talking about, uh, you know, 
what happens in insulin resistance is the person starts to have less sensitivity of the insulin receptors. And the receptors sort of sink into the mud and disappear into the cell. And so now they're not available. So the insulin is trying to hit what receptors are left twice as hard. And the pancreas's job is to keep the blood sugar normal. So it just keeps pumping out insulin as fast as it can, as much as it can. And with few, and the receptors are becoming less and less sensitive to it, re- literally resistant to its effects. And so eventually the pancreas crashes. And at that moment, you may go into what's called type 1.2 diabetes, where you actually get enough inflammation in your pancreas that you're destroying beta cells. But a lot of times the pancreas just cuts out like that pony that gets ridden to death in the Pony Express. It's just like, I'm done. And mm-hmm. and you can bring people out of diabetes, by the way, if you catch them early enough. But it is there is there is a way to do that, but it's not how we treat it. And so there, every now and then you'll hear of a miraculous rescue, and it's like, yeah, if you because they did it right. But that's another conversation for your friend. Uh, yeah, she has leptin resistance, which means her fat cells uh, re- release. A hormone saying you you're you're done. Don't eat, and her brain doesn't hear it. So oh, okay. She has yeah. she has the same thing going on with the hor- the other satiety hormone ghrelin. Ghrelin is um her uh, her she's not signaling properly. It's like the lines of communication between her brain, her hypothalamus, and her fat cells, which are an orga- which are a hormone tissue, are. Uh, are cut. They're not communicating. And so she she doesn't have any um, agency from her brain to actually change her appetite patterns or distract herself. And, you know, she can do things like exercise, but she'll get ravenous. And it's very, very difficult not to eat. And even if you eat only a little bit, you don't lose weight because the body, ha- the hormones that would ordinarily make you lose weight have stopped working as well. Yeah. So, well, really, what what I've been recommending now that we have this drug, I've actually become an advocate for the semiglutide in people like your friend, and I don't think it belongs in influencers who want to lose twenty pounds for the Met Gala, but I think it belongs squarely in medical management because if you can break this vicious cycle and lose some of the weight, which is sending the blockers to the satiety signals, it's almost like it's a cancer. And if she's got those diagnoses and she has health insurance or she has even, if she has Medi-Cal even, she can qualify for this and she can go on it. She doesn't have to stay on it for the rest of her life. She, okay, and what's the name of that uh, again? Well, uh, the the drug name is semi-glutide. So S-E-M-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-A-S-E-M-
that's where I would go. This is this is something where I I am all for natural, but when you're yeah. you know when you're in quicksand and you're sinking, I'm going to throw you whatever kind of rope I've got. <laughs> But was that G L U T I N T I D E tide, like the low the tide is rising, the tide is falling, semaglutide. Oh, okay. okay, and thank you so much for what you where you went first in saying that uh, you know connecting it to her neurology because I have to under I want to understand. Oh, you know this is this is way beyond serious. This, this is, is this yeah this this is yeah. not. This is not something that's people are very ashamed, and they shouldn't be. They have a disease. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, thank you very much. And any 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 time you want to talk about this, I'm usually listening. Well, good. So. Thank you for the invitation. I will talk about it more. Okay. Thank you. All right. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our next email comes from Liz in Maryland. Liz writes. Uh, cat allergy cure. I remember you mentioning a few years ago that they had discovered a cure for cat allergy, and I wondered if there are any updates you can provide us with. Is this study the same as what you had read about a few years ago and shared with us? And uh, let me, I will not read the uh, URL, but the study that she sent me is actually a follow-up to the one I had talked about earlier. And what this study was was they have developed a allergy shot for cat hair allergy or cat dander allergy more accurately and this uh, vaccination is given like most allergy shots uh, into the subcutaneous tissue once a month at an allergy office i immediately after i read this article first time I went and went looking to see has anybody done it successfully orally because for with a lot of foods and a lot of pollens you can do sublingual immunotherapy and put it under your tongue and unfortunately nobody has been able to invent a successful extract that can be given sublingually you have to actually stick it into your skin but if you do that you reduce the allergy symptoms this latest study that Liz sent me was a new drug. It's called tep, uh, tepilumab, tepelumab, sorry, tezpelumab, T-E-Z-P-E-L-U-M-A-B. Uh, and this is an antibody against something called thymic stromal lymphopoietin, which translates to more or less the spongy tissue of the thymus makes a stimulant for lymphocytes. And uh, this stuff blocks that thymic stimulus from being made, and it very drastically improved the duration of the allergy shots. The problem with allergy shots is you do them monthly, and then after two or three years, you're fine, and you stop, and after two or three years, you're back in the allergist's office. Good for the allergist, not so good for you. Uh, so they've got up to three years now with people who got the tezpelumab and they and their allergy shots, and they are not relapsing. So they're continuing to hold. That's what uh, that's good good sign. You could, of course, Liz, also get a Bali cat. And I am very cat allergic. And uh, last summer I had the good fortune to spend 
about 18 days in a household with a Bali cat. They're a subgroup of Siamese, and I had heard, oh, you won't be allergic to uh, this cat because he doesn't, uh, he's a Bali cat. And I'm like, well, everything's magic in Bali, right? But I'm not buying this, except that the cat slept on my pillow uh, right next to me, cuddling me for three weeks, and I never even sneezed once. I did get COVID, but I didn't sneeze. So I think that you could get a Bali cat or you could get these allergies. And as far as the drug is concerned, this was a preliminary study. Drug has still not been released. A quick one from Peggy in Long Island, New York. Peggy writes, CT scans and mitigating negative effects. Dear Dr. Don, I'm truly appreciated all your knowledge and insight, as well as the time you've taken to answer my questions in the past. My question today involves CT scans. I am one year post-op for CRC stage one, that's colorectal cancer stage one, and I had a scan three months post-op and again six months later. In my recent appointment, my doctor said I should have another scan at six-month interval or wait a full year. He gave me the choice. Knowing that any recurrence is more likely to occur within two years following surgery, I opted for the earlier scan despite knowing that radiation is never a good thing. I'm curious as to what you think of my six-month choice and what, if anything, I can do to mitigate the negative effects of the radiation in these scans. Thank you for everything you do. Well, first of all, Peggy, I'm a little, I was a little perplexed when I read your email because normally if you have a stage one colorectal cancer, that means that you have a very, very low risk for lymph involvement. Uh, they didn't find any lymph nodes. They, they didn't resect any lymph nodes. So I'm wondering if I'm missing something here. Normally what would happen is you would get your scan before your surgery to look and see, you you know, with you would get a scan to look and see if there was any evidence for um, lymph node involvement. And if there wasn't, they would look at the margins of your cancer when it was removed and see how far, how deep it had gone. Uh, and then you had a scan at three months and a scan at six months. Uh, and these are CT scans. Now, at this point, I would think that you should be able to go with just an annual colonoscopy for, uh, and then one more time, and then go to a every three-month cycle of colonoscopies, unless they've changed that. But when I looked up the regulations, what I, or suggestions, I should say, they aren't regulations. Uh, I didn't see anything that matched the protocol that you're on. So either I'm missing something or they're being very, very aggressive. Uh, so sorry, uh, but I think possibly they're being a bit over-aggressive. Possibly they own the CT scan. Uh, and possibly not. Possibly I'm mistaken because I don't know the full details of your case. So let me be very clear. This is a deliberately ambiguous answer. So let's go to a feel-good story. I was always nice to wrap up with a few uh, feel-good stories. Uh, brain-spine interface allows paralyzed man to walk using his thoughts. Now, we heard about this fellow a couple of years ago. He was one of three people who had a device implanted in their spine. Uh, this was done at the Swiss Institute of Technology, and uh, they basically 
uh, he had his spinal cord damaged in his neck. His arms were partially paralyzed and his legs were completely paralyzed. And they implanted a, uh, a device in the lower spine. And uh, it was a spinal implant. And then it acted as a bridge to transfer the impulses from I want to walk as it went through the upper part of the spine down to the legs where the legs ran a program basically that was walking or he could, uh, I think he was only able to walk, but he, but the legs were sort of robo legs and they would walk for him, but there wasn't a lot of control. He didn't really control the legs. His thoughts triggered a program in the legs but hey when you're when you can't walk at all that's way better than nothing but this next iteration is very very interesting so he already had the spinal implant and the implants in his legs that uh, allowed the allowed it to run the program to make the legs do walking motions but then they placed a large 64 grid against the membrane covering his brain. A few, uh, probably about a month ago, I did a show where I talked about all of these various brain in technologies and how we had things put on going into the brain and how we had things resting on the surface of the brain and various grids. And there were great arguments about which company was best, but a whole lot of really interesting tech. This is something of a gold rush right now to really perfect the brain interface. Well, this latest iteration used two 64-electrode grids on the meninges on each side of his brain. So they went into his skull, laid these things on the surface of his skull like a little picnic blanket, and then closed back up. But they put them in a very precise location. They put them on the motor cortex part of the brain over the leg part of the brain. So there's a map of your entire body on the surface of your brain and it's upside, it's upside down. So the face is down towards your ear and the, and the feet actually kind of wrap over the top of the skull. So they, so when you think about walking, the neurons that connect to the cerebellum that connect to legs through a series of synapses are running a program, and you can feel that with these electrodes, read it, and transmit it to the engines in his legs. And what this allowed was it allowed him to walk on just thinking about walking. And after a short delay, his legs begin a walking motion. So it's not a pre-programmed stimulation. He's actually driving his legs He has control over the parameters. He can control the speed. He can um, make a step. He can climb. He can lift his foot and climb a stair. Uh, And what's super interesting is after about 40 sessions of rehab using this brain spinal interface, uh, he could voluntarily move his legs and feet. Okay, good. But uh, he can walk short distances without the device now if he uses crutches. So what that meant is that there were actually nerve cells in there that 
were connecting that were not completely dead. They were hibernating. They were too weak to send the signal and that or something. But now with this augmented signal, they've come back online and are able to let, so this guy can now walk without his device effectively if he uses crutches for balance. No one knew this could happen. It's such a long-term chronic injury. There was no, we, we never knew that in a situation like this, uh, you, it could come back. Now it raises all sorts of interesting ideas. What if we got in there with stem cells as we put in the brain-spine interface? What if we uh, connected it up? What if we connected it up to the bladder? Could we help people be continent again who've lost that ability? Uh, the, the fact that this is actually trainable at a level that no one who invented the device, they thought they were essentially d- inventing a robotic prosthetic, but instead they were inventing a kind of brace. And it's you know, pretty fantastic that they were able to do that. I'm going to talk for our final five minutes about the human pan genome, which is uh, a, a something coming. We've heard of the human genome. Well, the pan genome just means rather than just having white males in there, we're going to get all of the broad and amazing diversity of humanity out there. So this is diversity and inclusion taken to genomic research. And for I'm so happy to see gen- genomics coming out of the long, dark winter that they were left in by a misguided racist pseudoscience called eugenics uh, that existed 100 years ago. And for a very, very long time, Checking for checking differences between people of different skin colors was tainted with the brush of eugenics, and it was a third rail, uh, le- electrically charged, likely to get you thrown out of your program if you even suggested that there was some interesting stuff to be found there. Then we found the genome, and then we found how to decode the genome, but the reference genome that we created is a racist reference genome because we used only white people for the most part in our and that does not represent all of the variability and diversity of mankind so a new project the pan genome is going to create a new usable reference for genomics and the first draft of this is 47 individuals of greatly different ancestral backgrounds and they're going to add 119 million bases to the existing reference. This provides a much better representation of human genetic diversity. It's not possible with a single sort of er human reference. This will continue ongoing uh, in the assembly hub of UCS of the UCSC gen- uh, genome browser, and it's being produced by. Uh, Colette, I should say, by UCSC's Associate Professor of Biomecular Engineering, Benedict Payton, and Assistant uh, Professor of Biometric Engineering, Karen Miga. Um, And all I can say is go slugs uh, for being on literally the cutting edge of this important uh, contribution to humans' knowledge. Our, Our genomes vary very slightly, about a quarter of a percent from person to person. 
And when we look at uh, when we look at an individual's genome study for variation, they're comparing it to that standard reference. But that standard reference is 20 years old and fundamentally flawed. By adding 47 different individuals, the the normal wild type reference becomes much bigger, and it's and it tells us that a whole bunch of stuff isn't special, it's normal. And that's very important because we have too much to learn here. Uh, researchers are going to be so aided in this, and the structural, uh, structural variants will learn so much about insertions, deletions, tandem repeats, so many things that are available across all of these individuals and that are normal normal variations, not special mutations. And also in the pan-genome, they're going to be able, they're going to have haplotype uh, resolved information, meaning that it can confidently distinguish the two parental sets of chromosome. This is a major breakthrough. Did this come from dad or did this come from mom? I, I'm getting too far in the weeds, and I can't explain it to you when I don't understand it myself. But we will have much better ability to do good work in genetics in the future because of embracing diversity. And I think, given the time of year it is, that this is a perfect moment to celebrate that story. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.